0: Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. My wife went to a store this week to buy some Christmas bags to deliver some baked goodies to those who can't get out and could not find a single bag in the store with any religious imagery or even the words Merry Christmas. And you probably have noticed the progressive dechristianizing of Christmas. And so now... And uh, (laughs) (laughs) now, Thank you, Sam. You can find people giving happy holidays and season greetings, but Merry Christmas is considered inappropriate. Nativity scenes and stars on public property are considered offensive. And we have seen the marginalizing where now you see more and more, hear more and more songs celebrating the season rather than the Savior. And networks can still broadcast shows about elves and snowmen and reindeer and Santa, but not any longer can Linus explain to Charlie Brown the meaning of Christmas. And there has been this de-Christianizing of Christmas because there has been this growing hostility towards Christ. And this is something that has been going on progressively and the Bible tells us will continue to go on progressively because Ever since God placed Adam and Eve in the garden of Genesis 3, there was an enemy that wanted to undo them. And there has been an enemy actively moving, both at a spiritual and an earthly level, to try to attack God and His people and His Messiah and their followers. And that's the focus of our text today in Daniel chapter 11. Uh, Daniel 11 is the content of the message of Daniel's fourth and final vision. Last week we talked about the preparation for the vision. And you remember Daniel was on the banks of the Tiber River or the Tigris River and he saw the pre-incarnate Christ and was undone, collapsed unconscious. And an angel came and comforted him and strengthened him. And now as he is risen to his feet, he's going to be getting the content of this revelation in 11.2 through 12.4 followed by an epilogue that we'll explore next week. Our text today moves in four major movements. The coming kings between Darius or Cyrus, the king of Persia, until Antiochus IV. The cruelest king, Antiochus IV, who is a type in anticipation of the Antichrist, the final tyrant. And then there will be a period of final distress and then a final deliverance. Now, uh, Jesse Wells and the young adults previewed this text last Sunday, and Jesse let me know that we didn't find chapter 11 as riveting as chapter 9, which I strongly suspect was a strong understatement, because Daniel 11 is some pretty hard slogging. If you've gone skiing and you notice the green, the blue, the black, and then the black diamond, uh, this is a black diamond text. It is filled with a myriad of details uh, concerning historical figures that most people, even if you're, have gone to college and studied ancient near Eastern history are foreign and unfamiliar. This is a difficult text. And so we're going to be moving through it, not verse by verse, but in chunks. And the analogy to think about is if you've gone to a large natural science museum or a science museum, and you can't have enough time to see every exhibit and read every card, So what you do is you move through certain halls more quickly to be able to spend more time at the displays in the exhibits that are more relevant and interesting. And we're going to do the same today. We're going to move rather rapidly through the original sections of this. And then like the angel gives us our cue, we're going to pause on the figure of Antiochus IV because he's the historic anticipation of the Antichrist to come. And then we will see about the deliverance that will come someday. So that's how we're going to approach this text. We'll begin in verse 2. I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia, and a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out towards the four points of the compass. Now, we've seen this story before. This is the transition from Persia to Greece, and then the breaking up of Alexander the Great's empire among four of his generals. This was part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue as we move from the gold head to the silver chest to the bronze torso this was part of the beast rising up out of the ocean in Daniel 7. And so Medo-Persia Empire was the bear raised up on one side and the winged leopard represented Alexander the Great who conquered. So we've heard some of this story before with a few added details. And so here the Greek king that, or the Persian king that's going to attack Greece, this is very likely Xerxes I. And so probably most of you know the Battle of Thermopylae and the brave 300 Spartan soldiers. This is that event. Uh, Another name by which he's known in Scripture is Ahasuerus. And this is the same Ahasuerus in Ezra and in Esther. And so we are seeing again this cycle because from Daniel's perspective, he knew that Israel was going home. But what God is telling him and his people is that doesn't mean that everything is going to be comfortable from then on. There is going to be a steady progression of oppressive powers that are going to go on for the foreseeable future. You're not home yet. You're back home. The captivity's done. The exile's been completed. You paid for your 70 neglected Sabbath years. But that doesn't mean you're going to enjoy peace and ease. This isn't going to be Goshen, (laughs) that you're somehow impervious from all the afflictions of the land, And that's an important lesson for us, because all of us, to varying degrees, believe in a prosperity gospel. All of us believe that if I'm a good man or woman, then God will bless me with certain things, a certain measure of health, a certain measure of security, a certain measure of blessings in this life, that God will give me a spouse, God will give me children, God will give me healthy children, God will give me, God will give me, and God will not give me, God will not give me. And that's why we respond the way we do when hardship comes or when we're denied deep desires of our heart. We all have a prosperity gospel, contrary to everything the Bible tells us to expect. And so the angel lets Daniel know time and again to let God's people know time and again that we're not home until we're on the new earth. Until then, we are pilgrims in exile. We are aliens and strangers in a foreign land. We are not home, and God is going to allow us to be exposed to oppressions and suffering because that's going to be part of the way we bear witness to Him to the fallen world around us. Uh, My wife shared this week, she said, I had kind of a new insight that we were talking about part of God's witness to the world is our love for one another. That by this the world will know that we're Christ's disciples if we love other Christians with a Christ-like love but as she was dealing with or helping people deal with various struggles in their life, she said, it struck me that another way that God lets us witness to the world is that though we suffer with them, we don't suffer like them. That we have hope in hard times. That we're able to find joy in grief. That we're able to do without and yet be content. And God allows us to suffer with the world so that we don't suffer like the world so that the world will wonder why and come to ask us and we could tell them about our great God and Savior. And that our hope is not here, it's in heaven. And our hope is not now, it's to come. And so the angel says, it's not going to get better. And in fact, it's going to get much, much worse. So for the first 19 verses, it's a 355 year span filled with uh, commentators estimate 135 fulfilled prophecies in the first 35 verses. It's just fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment, but it pauses on one ruler who reigned for 12 years because of its importance in Israel, and this is Antiochus Epiphanes, and we're going to look at just a few verses because of his importance for the text to come. Antiochus means the opposer, and he was a Seleucid king. So the kings of the north, the Seleucid Empire, that was based in Antioch, Syria, often battled with the kings of the south, the Ptolemies, based in Alexandria, Egypt. And that's what verses 5 through 20 are about. But in verse 21, it begins to focus on one particular king, the fourth Antiochus, known as Epiphanes, the illustrious one. And he was an especially boastful person. Uh, He printed coins with the inscription of basically claiming to be God. And now we begin to get some descriptions in our, from our perspective history, from Daniel's future, that there would arise a despicable person on whom the honor of kingship had not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Antiochus IV was not next in the line of su- succession, a relative was, but he deceived him and through treachery, Gained the throne. We get the character of this ruler. Verse 23 says that he will make an alliance with him, talking about the Jewish high priest, and with him he will practice deception. That there was bribery, there was deception, in order to mislead a ruler of the religion of God's people. And then in verse 28, it says that he will return to his land from Egypt with much plunder and his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, that he will be enraged and become at enmity with God's covenant with his people, and he will take action. And this is exactly what happened. So there's a book called 1 Maccabees, and it's part of what's called the Apocrypha. And if you grew up in a Roman Catholic tradition, this was part of your Bible, but it's not part of the Protestant Bible because it was never part of the Hebrew Bible. But it's still an important historical work written in the first century BC about events that took place about a century earlier. And this is the account from 1 Maccabees about Antiochus and what he did that corresponds to Daniel's text. After subduing Egypt, Antiochus returned in the 143rd year. And he went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar. The lampstand for the light, and all its utensils. He plundered the sanctuary. He took also the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, the gold decoration on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver, the gold, the costly vessels, the hidden treasures he found, and he took them all to his own land, Syria, to the north. He shed much blood. Eighty-five thousand Jews were killed. And he spoke with great arrogance. And then two years later, the king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute. And he also came to Jerusalem with a large force. Deceitfully, he spoke peaceful words to them, and they believed him. But he suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow, and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, tore down its houses and its surrounding walls. He took captive the women and the children and seized the livestock. This is a brutal oppression and plundering and terrorizing of God's people by this Syrian king. But he's not done yet. The text in Daniel goes on in verse 29, that at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south from Syria into Israel, but this time he will not turn out of the way as he did before. I'm sorry, going to Egypt. For ships of Katim, that is uh, Cyprus, will come against him, Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant, take action again. Antiochus IV went down to plunder Egypt again, but he was stopped by a Roman fleet. And the Roman commander, in telling him he could go no further, Antiochus said, Let me consider your offer. And knowing the nature of Antiochus, he drew a circle around him in the sand and said, You can't step out of the circle until you yield. And so he returned and angry passed through Jerusalem to begin yet another wave of terror on God's people. He will come back and show regard for those who forsook the holy covenant, those who allied with him. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. Now, Here again, the book of Maccabees, written a century after these events, gives us an account of what happened. The king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to worship foreign gods. He forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices. He outlawed the Jewish religion. He ordered them to profane the Sabbaths and the festivals. He prohibited the Jews from honoring the Sabbath or from participating in the holy days that God had commanded on penalty of death. He ordered to defile the sanctuary and the priest, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals. He ordered them to leave their sons uncircumcised on penalty of death. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane. He made them celebrate his birthday on the 25th of every month by sacrificing a swine on altars that he set up in their communities so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. And he added, whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. He didn't simply come for plunder. He didn't simply oppress another nation. He tried to eradicate their religion. And then it got worse. On the 15th day of Chislev, December, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of Burnt Offerings. He went into the Holy of Holies on the temple to Yahweh, and he installed a pagan temple to the Syrian version of the god Zeus, and there he put a fallen meteorite that was part of their religious emblem, symbol, and he sacrificed to the Syrian Zeus on the temple dedicated to Yahweh. He desolated, desiccated, profaned the temple, the altar by this abominable sacrifice. And then he built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah to offer incense, the books of the law, the Torah that they found, they tore to pieces and burned to fire. And anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law Was condemned to death by the decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel. On the 25th day of the month they offered sacrifice on the altar on top of the altar of the burnt offering in Jerusalem. And according to the decree they put to death the women who had had their children circumcised and hung their dead infants around their necks. There was never a tyrant like Antiochus IV. This deceitful, treacherous, arrogant, boastful, brutal, blasphemous king. If you want to know what the enemy of God looks like, it's him. And so if you're Ukrainian, you think of Stalin. If you were Poland, you think of Hitler. There are certain people that this was the greatest enemy that our people has ever known. And for the Jews, it was Antiochus IV. Because he is prefiguring a worse ruler to come. This was the worst thus far. But he's only anticipating the worst that's still to come. One that we know as Antichrist, because he is opposed to, at enmity with, trying to undo the Messiah and his people and his work. And that's what we get in the next set of verses, beginning of verse 36. Then the king, and this is not talking about Antiochus IV. We have fulfilled prophecies up until verse 35, but now we move into things that have not yet happened that are not part of the historical record. Things still yet to come. During the 70th week that had been revealed to Daniel in chapter 9. During the time known as the tribulation, or the day of Jacob's trouble. Moving forward on the eve of the return of Christ, it's going to get much worse before the sun finally rises and dawns. And this is some of what's going to occur during that period. The king will do as he pleases. He will be willful and he will have the authority to act autocratically, autonomously. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God. In fact, this is what 2 Thessalonians 2 says, referring to Antichrist under the name of the man of lawlessness or the son of destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God And displays himself as being God. He will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. He will blaspheme. He will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. He will experience a season of success and apparent victory. He will show no regard for the God of his fathers. Now some take this to be will indicate that the Antichrist will come from Jewish heritage because the God of fathers is a reference in the Old Testament to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't know for sure, but many think that he will have no uh, interest in the desire of women. He'll be callous, having no natural affections, nor will he show regard for any other God. He'll magnify himself above them all. Instead, he will honor a God of fortresses. What will he value? Military might, military power. And he'll invest in it with gold and silver and costly stones and treasures that he'll amass a mighty armor for himself, army for himself. He'll take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god, possibly Satan, whose servant he is. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, to those who will take his number and name on their bodies, those who will leave the true God to worship this false god, those who will deny Christ, for the sake of pleasing and getting benefit from the Antichrist. And he'll cause them to rule over many and will parcel out that land for a season. This is still to come. This is still future. We see indications of this in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. We see reference to this in 2 Thessalonians 2. And we get great detailed descriptions of this in Revelation 6-19. through So, this is something that is being introduced to, us to, introduced to us now in some detail of things still to come. And then we get a few more verses about what will happen. At the end time, the time before Messiah's return, the King of the South, a reference to Egypt in its other references, will collide with him. And the King of the North, possibly referring to the Antichrist or to some other Northern King, uh, with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, using old imagery to refer to a coming military conflict. He'll enter the beautiful land, Israel. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon, nations further to the, or to the east, will be rescued from his hand. He'll have some success against Egypt and a number of other events that we don't yet know in full detail as to what's to come. Now there are certain people who get fascinated with details of the end times and there are numerous books and numerous messages and numerous websites dedicated to identifying every last aspect of prophetic revelation. And I'll just confess that that never has much interested me nor has it gained me much occurrence because people have been identifying the antichrist ever since Daniel 11 was written. Uh, Various Roman emperors from Nero onward were associated with him. Then the popes, when the bishops of Rome rose to power, began talking about different European leaders. And then with the Reformation, people began identifying a number of different popes with the Antichrist. During the American Revolution, there was consensus that King George was this figure. During the Civil War, it was Robert E. Lee or Lincoln, depending on which side of the Mason-Dixon you lived on. During World War II, well of course it was Mussolini or Hitler or Stalin or FDR. And then during the Cold War, well of course it was JFK or Gorbachev because of that strange birthmark or Robert Wilson uh, Reagan because six letters, six letters, six letters, six, 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 the number of the beast, accident. Well, of course, <laughs> but some people said, uh, Elvis, Sodom Hussein, there's been a cottage industry of people filling in the details of end time prophecy. I'll confess I'm skeptical of most of it. To me, what eschatology, the, stud, the study of the end times is primarily about is the culmination and completion of God's creation and redemption purposes. It's not just about figuring out minute details about a short period of time. It's about how the whole story wraps up. It's about the good guys winning. It's about slaying the dragon to, to rescue the girl. And, and that's primarily what we need to keep in mind here, is not trying to guess details and looking at our newspaper, but to get the big picture, the big sweep, to give us hope and encouragement to remain faithful, even when hard times come, And even when harder times come because biblically it's going to get darkest just before the dawn. Uh, My wife will often say, you know, as people complain about our country's going down, the world's going down, the news is getting darker. And then she'll say, well, that's what we should expect. And and biblically that's true. It's going to get harder before it gets happiest, but good times are coming. The good guys win. And that's what we begin to see in chapter 12. Now, at that time, toward this end time events, Michael, the archangel, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And There will be a time of distress, the tribulation, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people, Daniel, everyone who is found written in the book of life will be rescued. There's going to be distressful times such as human history has never seen. But at that darkest hour, Michael will arise because the Messiah will come and those belonging to Daniel's people, not all of Israel or the Jews, but those of the faith of Daniel and specifically those whose names are written in the book. Now, the Bible refers to the book of life, going all the way back to Exodus when Moses is on Mount Sinai. You remember how when he was getting the law, Aaron was leading the people in the breaking of the law, building a golden calf to worship a false god? And Moses says, oh, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of the book which you have been written. And then in Psalm 69, we get the first reference to the book of life, the book containing the names of those who will inherit eternal life. Isaiah says, it will come about that he who is was left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life. Malachi says that those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. And then we get many references to this in the New Testament. When the twelve came back from their short-term mission trip, And we're celebrating the fact that God had given them the authority to cast out demons. Jesus says, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Paul will say to the Philippians, I ask you to help these women, uh, Yodiki and Syntyche, who have shared my struggle, and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In Revelation all who dwell on the earth will worship the Antichrist except those whose, name, or those whose name has not been written in the foundation of the world before the book of life. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, the book of life. And if anyone's name is not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And in that heavenly Jerusalem someday there will be nothing unclean No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God records the deeds that are done, and then there is a recording of those who will inherit eternal life. And this is the first reference of eternal life in our Bible coming up next. And so we have confidence that our salvation is secure because it has been indelibly written into the Lamb's book of life. And no one can take us from God. No one can snatch us out of Christ's hands. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. As we just sang, the body they may kill, but God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever, and we're in the roles of the citizens. Um, Someone wrote Thomas Aquinas asking him, "Is there really an actual physical book in heaven? You know, is there actually something tangible that we'll see someday?" And Thomas Aquinas wrote back. I personally think not, but there's no harm in believing it if you do. And it was just a great pastoral answer regarding that. So who are those that are part of Daniel's people? Well, those who share Abraham's faith. We see in the Gospel of Matthew a warning to the Pharisees. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to rise up children to Abraham. Being a physical Hebrew, having that as your race, is not what makes you part of God's people. Paul says in Romans, They are not all Israel who were descended from Israel, Jacob, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. There was Isaac, there were Ishmael, but only the descendants of Isaac were of God's chosen people. For this reason, justification is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Jew and Gentile, who believe in the Messiah, who trust in God for our salvation. So when you entered Sunday school and learned about Father Abraham, who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord, that's what that's drawing from. Finally, in Galatians, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you, Genesis 12. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Abraham was not saved because he was circumcised or because he obeyed the law. He was saved by grace through faith, as are everyone who is saved. Because there's nothing that we can do to earn or to merit anything with God. We're recipients of grace, of mercy, of favor. And how do we receive it? How do we accept that gift? By faith. By acknowledging that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves and entrusting ourselves to Jesus Christ the Messiah, who saves us, who delivers us. And then those who do so will find that their names have been written in the book of life indelibly because our names are inscribed on his hands and in his heart and nothing, not the Antichrist, not the tribulation, nothing can separate us from that love of God in Christ. We're secure. Daniel goes on, or the angel to Daniel. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. What about those who are killed? What about those who will die? They're going to rise. And they will rise to everlasting life. It's the first reference to eternal life in the Bible, the first explicit use of this phrase. It's the first explicit reference to the resurrection in the Bible. But to the others, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Here, the angel of God reveals to Daniel that in that day, at the end of time, There will be a rising. There will be a resurrection. Our eternity is not going to be as bodiless beings with halos and harps floating about the clouds. That may be in Tom and Jerry, but that's not in Scripture. We are going to receive a resurrection body and it's going to be glorious. As different as a grain of wheat put in the ground is from the fruitful stalk that comes up. And then there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The perishable will put on imperishable. The inglorious will put on glory and we will be prepared to endure and enjoy the glories of seeing God in the face. And first John says that then we will be like him because we will see him as it is in that beautiful vision of being face to face with our Lord. We will be transformed and we will live on a new and purified earth forever and forever. It doesn't matter what they do to our body. They can't touch our soul. Christ has secured it. And we will receive a new body someday to live on a renewed earth someday, eternally. And those who have insight into this truth, those who know this saving gospel, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead the many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever, honored by God and glory. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words, seal up the book until the end time. You won't understand everything So people will go back and forth. Knowledge will increase over time as we get more information. But seal it up, secure it. Don't let anyone alter it or change it. And this is the conclusion of the revelation of the angel to Daniel the prophet. Now, there's a Lutheran commentator named H.C. Leupold. And he wrote this about this chapter. Daniel 11 might be treated in Bible classes, but we do not see how it could ever be used for a sermon or for sermons. So in other words, don't preach this text. But God gave us this text, and so we believe that it's profitable. So here are some of the profitable lessons we can learn from this black diamond passage. The first is that the Bible is completely reliable, and so we should heed it. There were 135 fulfilled prophecies from the first 35 verses of this passage. That should give us great confidence that the Prophecies yet to be fulfilled will be. And so we trust them, we believe them, and we live our life accordingly. Secondly, God is completely sovereign over earthly and spiritual powers. He raises up kings and kingdoms and he puts them down. He allows Satan and Antichrist to have a role for a season and then he will put them away forever and forever. But God is sovereignly in charge of all things at all times. God does sovereignly permit his people to suffer oppression and it will intensify. <laughs> so we again would, lift, would love to be impervious to all this and to not have to question whether or not we should get the vaccine because as Christians we don't need it. That somehow we are the picture of health and affluence but that's not what scripture teaches. God loves us enough to allow us to suffer, because that's how we learn to trust in Him, and that's how He shapes us into the image of Christ. God loves the world enough to let His children suffer so that we can show the world how to suffer and help lead them to a Savior who can get them through those times. But God's going to allow that. It's part of His plan. There is coming a time when God will put an end to evil and judge the wicked. The end is not in doubt. We won't be approaching Armageddon with bated breath. We won't be turning on Fox News to see, are we going to win the the runoff election? God's got it. We're going to win. The good guys end up on top. And God will resurrect and reward those whose names are written in the book of life. Nothing can change that. Nothing can alter that. Nothing can affect that. Therefore, unbelievers should repent and embrace God's Messiah. There will be a resurrection of the unrighteous also, and they will endure eternal shame. Daniel says eternal contempt you don't just disappear you don't just stay gone you rise to suffer God's judgment and we can't bear that it's unbearable and so God has given us this season to acknowledge that we're imperfect to ask his forgiveness and to receive the gift of His son that we celebrate at Christmas and those who do are born from above they become new creations in Christ and we don't have to worry about anything that happens after And therefore, finally, believers should stay faithful and hopeful because once again we see that God is sovereign and is coming to set all things right. Now, as you look at different Christmas accounts and tales and stories and shows, there's another running motif of Christmas villains. And so from uh, Ebenezer Scrooge with his bah humbug, and when Cratchit wants the day off, and he goes, it's just one day, And Scrooge says, that's a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. And then there was uh, Potter in Pottersville. And the Grinch tried to steal Christmas. And the White Witch tried to freeze Christmas so that it would be always winter and never Christmas. Christmas has always been under assault. When Herod heard the Christmas tidings, do you remember what the king did? He sent his soldiers to slay the infants. In Revelation 12... Who's there waiting outside the delivery room as Mary's about to give birth? The dragon, ready to devour. But all for naught, all for nothing. Christmas has come. Christ is coming. Nothing could alter or change that. So be of good cheer. Celebrate not the season, but the Savior. Stay faithful, stay hopeful. It's going to get dark, and then it will get darkest. Then the sun will rise and Michael will come. And the enemy will be defeated, and we will reign with Christ forever and forever and forever. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for telling us what's to come. That even as we get concerned, uh, even as we may accurately see things going down, and that makes us concerned not just for ourselves, but our children, our grandchildren, for those around us, thank you for showing us what will happen in the future so that we can have hope and perspective to remain faithful in the present. Let us be faithful in whatever you allot for us. And whatever oppression we may suffer, whatever persecution you may allow us to endure, let us remain faithful and hopeful, putting our entire trust in the sovereign God who will send his Messiah back once again to set all things right.